All right, Psalm 69 is a deeply emotional psalm. I mean, this runs the gamut of emotions. It's a psalm of David, we know that from the heading, probably written during his days on the run from Saul, when David was an outlaw and and Saul was chasing him down murderously. So we think that's where the the psalm was written, or, or in that time frame and in that difficulty or in that distress of David. And yet, the sheer intensity of the emotion here the, the breadth and the length of the language, it goes way beyond David. Nothing in David's life, nothing in his life comes to the level of the emotion and the passion that we read in Psalm 69. So the narrative, and you will see why, is far better suited to the son of David, Jesus. It's a passionate, prophetic psalm, much more messianic than Davidic. But I want to ask you a question. I asked my friends earlier this morning, and I'd just like you to think about this and be honest with yourself, and that is, how do you view Jesus emotionally? Now, I'm not talking about your emotion, how do you feel emotionally about Jesus, but when you think of Jesus and how He would have been in the flesh, walking with the apostles in the Galilee, or growing up, or moving through the streets of Jerusalem, how did He come off? As far as emotions are concerned, would you think calm, steady, even tempered with an English accent? (laughs) I mean, think about how he is portrayed in any movie that you've ever seen him in, and he is very staid, unemotional. My friends, Jesus is anything but impassive. He's not cold, he's not aloof, he's not indifferent, not poker-faced. That's not Jesus. Not Jesus as described in the Gospels. As we understand from there, yes, He was measured in self-control. Don't get me wrong. Self-control is the ninth fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit belongs to Jesus, therefore the fruit of the Spirit is Jesus. So you can go right down the list and that expresses who He is. But the very first fruit is love. That's not impassive. It's passionate. Joy. The second one. Is joy dull and somber? Now you see, Jesus was measured. Yes, Isaiah 42 prophesied He would be. Verse 2, He will not cry out or raise His voice or make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until He's established justice in the earth and in the coastlands are waiting or will wait expectantly for His law. So, yeah, He had measure and control of himself. He never flew off the handle. He never lost it. But we see him openly weep. A number of times in the Gospels, we see him weeping for Lazarus over Jerusalem in Gethsemane. Isaiah 53 verse 3 describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, there's an emotion for you. We catch flashes of fiery anger. Even as we see Him described with eyes like a flame of fire in Revelation chapter 1, we see these flashes in Jesus against the heartless Pharisees. Think about when He's in the Capernaum synagogue and and is on Sabbath and He's about to heal. He's being closely watched by the Pharisees to see what He's going to do. Is He going to dare heal someone on the Sabbath? And there's a man there with a shriveled hand. Do you remember the story? And Jesus asked them a question. He says, which one of you wouldn't 
go out and if you had an oxen fall into a hole, pull it out on the Sabbath. Should I not heal this man? And they're all stone cold silent and we're told that Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was ticked at their lack of compassion. We see his anger against the money changers in the temple, both at the beginning and the end of his ministry. Look it up. John chapter 2 is at the beginning. The other three gospel writers put it at the end. If that's not a mistake, I believe it bookends his ministry as he gets fired up in the temple. At times, Jesus was exasperated with his own followers, with this generation over the lack of faith surrounding him. He had to be amazed when a centurion expressed faith. We see emotion in Jesus all over the place. I think sometimes if we're just reading pages of a book, we don't stop and think about how emotional he was. We also see his gentleness with children. We see how he is the originator of pure joy. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So anger and joy and frustration. We see all of these things in Jesus. And Psalm 69 gives insight into the emotional intensity of Emmanuel, of Jesus Christ. It is the second most cited psalm in the New Testament. And I will show you those citations as we move along tonight. Seven different quotes that are in the New Testament that all come right out of Psalm 69. At the very beginning, we see the heading for the choir director, according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. According to Shoshanim, probably a musical style, either a particular melody or a way of playing a melody that would go with this style of song. And we see this in a couple of other songs. We think that Shoshanim, or according to Shoshanim, was a style of music that evokes emotion. Different kinds of emotion because we see the royal wedding of Psalm 45 is according to Shoshanim. We see in Psalm 80 that Asaph makes this impassioned plea for the rescue of Israel and that's according to Shoshanim. And then here in Psalm 69. Again, according to Shoshanim and Psalm 69 runs the entire gamut of emotion from sorrowful dismay to zealous passion to imprecatory anger. I like that word, imprecatory. We don't use that enough. This is an imprecatory psalm, and there are a number of them in the psalms, and an imprecatory psalm means a psalm of cursing. Ever think about Jesus cursing? He does in this psalm. Calling out condemnation, calling for curses. So an imprecatory psalm, and he's angry. And then by the end of the psalm, we see praise, thanksgiving, even love. So this this goes all over the place. This is a very emotional psalm. So we think Shoshanim has something to do with that. The word Shoshanim is literally translated lilies. Lilies. Shoshanah or Shoshanat would be lily in the singular. Shoshanim, lilies. Ever hear the old hymn, I found a friend in Jesus? The chorus of which sings, He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. So there are a lot of conservative commentators who say, oh, well, it's according to the Shoshanim, so this has to do with the lily, which has to do with Jesus, and that tends to kind of be the take. I've heard that taught. It preaches real pretty. I don't think it's right, but I'll, I'll talk about that later. 
But it's according to Shoshanim, and again, this psalm gives remarkable insight into the impassioned emotions of our Savior Jesus. Verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I'm weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Understand, and again, you will see this clearly, this comes right out of the Spirit of Christ. So if you've ever felt like any of the first three verses, guess who else has as well? When we say Jesus knows how you feel in your despair, when we say He understands what it means to be weary with crying to the point that your throat is dry and your eyes are failing as you wait for God, Jesus experienced that. Jesus was there. He knows what it's like. The devil would have you believe Jesus is cold and calculating and emotionless. Not so. In the flesh, He plumbed the depths of human emotion. Verse 1 is, literally, the waters have threatened my life. The waters have come to the soul. Which is a euphemistic way of saying, I am completely overwhelmed. How many of you have felt completely overwhelmed? It's too much, Lord. Have you ever said that? I can't do this anymore. God, I am at the end of my rope, Lord. I can't take it. And of course, then we think, yeah, but He doesn't give more than we can handle. But this is more than I can handle. (laughs) The waters have come to my soul. And note that it's my soul. My soul is overtaken. My my mind, my thoughts, I, I, I I can't handle this. I'm overwhelmed. Jesus knows what that's like. Verse 4, he says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. And we come to the first New Testament reference in the psalm. And Jesus makes it personal. If you'll turn over to John 15, you can take a look at this with me. John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus is on that night of His betrayal. And He's teaching and He's talking and He's sharing this this amazing discourse. John 14, 15, and 16. And in verse 18 of John chapter 15, Jesus speaking to His disciples says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me, hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now, they have both seen and hated me, and my Father as well. But this they have done to fulfill the word that is written in their law, Psalm 69, verse 4, They hated me without cause. 
They hated me without cause. You can almost hear in the voice of Jesus, it almost comes off like a question. It doesn't make sense. There's no reason for their hatred. The Savior comes into the world, does nothing but good. Nothing but heal and teach and love and show compassion. Raise people up. Encourage the brokenhearted. Care for the poor. That's all He did. And they hated Him for it. For all His goodness, they hated me without cause. Without cause is an interesting word in the Greek. It's dorian. And dorian is the same word Paul uses, get this, when he says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word dorian is without cause. Well, where is that in what Paul said? Being justified as a gift. As a gift is dorian. What Paul said is, we're justified without a cause. There is no reason, Lori Beth, for your justification. <laughs> and Dean says, hallelujah. There's no reason. And not just picking on Lori Beth. You can name any one of us, myself included. There is no reason for Rick Crawford's justification. I am justified without cause. I did nothing for it. But Jesus did everything for it. Jesus is the cause of my justification. And in the same way, contrary to that, on the other hand, just as people had no cause for hating Jesus, we have no cause for salvation without Him. They hated me without cause. And note he says at the end of that verse, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. What did Jesus restore that he did not steal? Very simply, life. Life. See, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I didn't steal it, I didn't take it, but I'm going to restore it. I'm going to give it to you. And in verse 5, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Okay, that can't be Jesus. Right? Because Jesus doesn't have folly. Jesus did no wrongs. So many of the prophetic psalms have the humanity of the psalmist woven together with the heart of Christ. And so in this we hear the cry of David coming through, and yet there is a connection. Because when he said, it's you who knows my, my folly, folly is the word evolt. And it means moral folly. My moral folly, my, my moral failings, my sin. You know my sin. And again, it's David's confessional relationship with God. I love that about David. He hides nothing from God, nor does he think he could. There's nothing that David did or would do that God wouldn't know about. So there's no hiding it. So we see throughout the Psalms, he just lays it out. You know my sin. Or as we talked about Sunday, against you I have sinned, against you only. Psalm 41, Psalm 51. And so he he expresses that moral folly. But in Jesus' case, there was no moral folly, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. My wrongs are not hidden from you. God looked upon Jesus covered 
completely saturated with the sin of humanity on the cross. It was not hidden. God saw it as Jesus bore it. Verse 6. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Was Jesus ever estranged from His family? We know in Mark 3.21, when His own people heard, that is that so many people surrounded Jesus in the house that He couldn't even stop for a falafel. (laughs) He couldn't eat. He couldn't get a shawarma if He wanted one. And so his own people, his family, gather around and were told that they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. Jesus is nuts. His own brothers didn't believe him. And they're looking at him and they're, you know there's a jealousy factor going on there. But there's also this, wait a minute, Messiah? Who does this guy think he is? Surrounded by all these people, and everyone wants to hear what Jesus has to say. And John 7 verse 5 says, not even his brothers were believing in him. And I find it fascinating that the book book of, of Yaakov and Jude, James and Jude, half brothers of Jesus, they don't even claim it. They refer to themselves as bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, for they believed in him after the resurrection. So the psalmist fought on, even his family. And his reproach and his dishonor, my friends, it started long before the cross. Jesus was being dishonored right and left, even during, even in his ministry, and it finally reaches the humiliating apex at the cross. But that wasn't the first time people started making fun of him, as you will see. Verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And the next two New Testament quotes come right out of Psalm 9. Again, like bookends of his ministry, Jesus entered the temple. He saw it defiled. And before his ministry and after his ministry, Jesus cleaned house. Took it through a a nice spring cleaning, if you will. With a controlled but righteous, zealous anger, he cleaned the temple. John chapter 2, verse 15. He made a scourge of cords and drove all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. I love that picture. Because once that gets put in there, you recognize this was a powerful moment in the temple courts. If he's flipping tables? And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. By the way, what is God's house today? If the temple was God's house in you know, the previous centuries, what's God's house today? We are. Exactly. Second Corinthians 6.16, we are a temple, the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So my question is, if we are temples of the living God, are we so zealous for these temples? 
that we would overturn tables, kick out animals, and the stink, and the greed? Do we, in our temples, drive these things out? Do we have a passion for holiness like Jesus had a passion for holiness? Do we have a passion for God's house, the church, His household? Are we that passionate, that zealous? I really wonder what Jesus would do if He entered the church generic today. Would He clean house? Would He need to? Or entering this house? You know, He does still clean house. It's called conviction. (laughs) I get convicted. Jesus is cleaning. You feel a pang of guilt over a thought or an action or a behavior. You feel a desire to to bring it to the Lord. You, You feel sorrow over some kind of sin in your life. Conviction, He's cleaning house. Let Him clean house. And it's a, it's a bold prayer, but I think it's the right prayer for us as followers of Jesus to actually ask Him to make us zealous for the house of God. Zealous for this house and zealous for the house, the entire church. And then Paul quotes the second half of Psalm 69, verse 9 in Romans 15, 3. For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Those who would reproach God. Those reproaches fall on Jesus. In the same way, those who would reproach Jesus, those reproaches would fall on us if we follow as followers of Jesus. It's one of the more difficult Christian principles, I think, to learn and to live and to love. If we're going to do that God's way, we will be reproached, period. You know, made fun of, disparaged, whether to our face or behind our back. If you're going to want to be, if you desire to be a godly person, a holy person, if you would be zealous for the house of God, you're going to be reproached. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And sometimes that persecution happens right in the court of the house. Sometimes it happens right in the household, in the church. There are those who are like, calm down, man. Don't be so zealous, man. You're getting a little too emotional there, sister, in your worship. Brother, in the way you're expressing your relationship with Jesus, we could use some more zealous. We could use some more passion in the way we live our lives for Jesus. You know, I I think it was last week that I mentioned that David lived his life out loud, which is why we have the Psalms. We get the passion, we get the pain, we get it all from David. Because he just lived it out. Yeah, but if I do that, I, I may fall under reproach. Exactly! Praise the Lord that you've been so blessed to be persecuted for His name's sake. Didn't Jesus say that? Are we zealous for this house? Now, just because we know we'll be reproached doesn't mean that it doesn't still hurt. Verse 10. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Note this, those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Which means from the city leaders sitting in the gate to the town drunks, everybody was ridiculing Jesus. Of course, sometimes the city leaders are the town drunks. Let's not go there right now. All politics aside. 
<laughs> but everybody, there was ridicule coming from the drunk and from the well-to-do toward Jesus Christ, toward the one who had zeal for his father's house. That's not something we read about or think about in the Gospels, but what about the fallout after Jesus cleansed the temple? What was said about him that night in their homes? You would not believe. You know, the money changer going home, yeah, it wasn't a red letter. It was another red letter day for the you know money changers today. Why didn't you bring home something, honey? Well, this guy came in, just lost it. You know, crazy Jesus. What was being said about it? Reproaches falling on Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. By the way, when is the acceptable time of prayer? All the time. Yeah, there's always never not an acceptable time to pray. Oh God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, your grace, answer me with your saving truth. Or literally answer me with the faithfulness of your salvation. Deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. What's the difference? Well, there's my foes and the waters are how I'm feeling. The mire is my own depression, my own sorrow, my own... You know, bad feelings, sadness at being reproached by others. They attack, I sink. Deliver me from that. May the flood of water not overflow me, verse 15, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth over me. And there was a pit that we believe Jesus went into literally. You can visit it in Jerusalem today. In what we believe with a high probability is Caiaphas' house. And there in Caiaphas' house, there's a deep pit. A cistern that, based on the excavations around it, we realize was used as a holding cell for prisoners. And Jesus was taken first to the house of Annas and then to the house of Caiaphas. And it's believed that he was dropped into that cistern and left there in that dark pit while they were discussing, what are we going to do with him? He actually went down into the pit. A dark, dank, disheartening place. We still have no idea all that really took place through those six trials on the night of his betrayal. All that he felt, where he was placed. We're going to look at that pit in another Savior Psalm a couple of weeks from tonight. But verse 16, continuing. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness. That is again, your grace is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. And I am amazed by that designation your servant that's stunning that Jesus would refer to himself that way that the spirit of Christ through David refers to himself as your servant that most high God would put on flesh not just to become a man but to become a servant of man Isaiah sings five servant songs we should do these sometime. We have in the past. I would encourage you, jot these down. And maybe if you just want to follow the path of the servant Savior, go through these psalms. We won't have time to do these or these, these uh, songs of Isaiah. We're not going to do them this summer. But it's Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, 
Isaiah 50. Isaiah 52 and 53 flow together. And then finally, Isaiah 61. Here they are again. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52 and 53, and then 61. Five servant songs through the prophet Isaiah, sung by the heart of Jesus, sung by the Messiah, because Messiah first had to come as a servant. So as he says, your servant here, this is indicative of Jesus himself who came as the suffering servant about whom Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So note that the position that Jesus humbly embraced was that of servant. The position he humbly embraced. But you know what? It's also the position that God highly esteems. For Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, it is the highest office in any church. Not pastor, not elder, not bishop, not cardinal, not pope. (laughs) The highest office is the office of the slave. The bond slave, the doulos in the Greek, the lowest form of servant, is the highly esteemed of God. Verse 18, he says, Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. I like that because what David's crying out and what Jesus declares here is God knows. He sees. He gets it. You're not going through some suffering that he is completely unaware of. You're not taking God by surprise when you cry out to Him. He knows what's going on. He's waiting for the cry. He's longing for the relationship. He's looking for you to draw Him in to whatever the situation is. You know what's going on, verse 19. And verse 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I look for sympathy. But there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Praise God, we have a comforter today. When you can find none in humanity, none among family or friends are available to come and comfort and console and talk with you when you're going through serious pain, you have the comforter. You have the Spirit of the living God. But think about this. Jesus was led out of the garden of Gethsemane and into the nightmare utterly alone. Completely alone. His followers fled. Peter denied him. Even John, his closest friend, followed at a distance. Ultimately, some of the women and John made their way to the cross. But even there, they didn't speak up. Nobody said, he's innocent. Stop this. Not a word. I mean, what could they do? What could they say? Would it matter if they tried to say anything at all? Matthew twenty six thirty one. he said, it's going to be that way. He said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 13, verse 7, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Have you noticed at this point 
20 verses into a 36-verse psalm that it's pretty much chronological. That you can track the life of Jesus through this psalm. Verse 4, He's hated without cause by some throughout His ministry. In verse 8, He's estranged from His family. In verse 9, He's zealous for His Father's house. In verse 9b, He's reproached by enemies. In verse 13, we find Him now in prayer, perhaps in Gethsemane. In verse 20, now let out of the garden, He's utterly alone. So we see this pattern leading through, and finally in verse 21, He's on the cross. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And we have just absolutely left as far away from David as we could get, and right to Jesus on the cross, explicitly, precisely. This is a profoundly detailed prophecy in two parts. Verse 21 gives us two more New Testament references here. The first one is the first half of the verse. They gave me gall for my food. Matthew 27, 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And you Bible students know what gall is. It's a painkiller. It's a numbing agent used to numb the crucified so that they would kind of go into a stupor for a time, and it was Rome's cruel way of extending crucifixion. Give them just enough painkiller so that they can last longer and be punished longer. Why? Well, it was complete brutality for the crucified, but it was also example to all those Jews walking by, this is where you're headed if you disobey Rome. Keep them alive on the cross for several days if possible. And so they gave them gall. And it numbed them just enough to prolong their agony. And Jesus rejected it. He would not drink it. They they gave me gall, he says. But after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. He would not take an ounce of painkiller on the cross. Because Jesus would experience it all. Jesus would feel, did feel, the full weight of the wrath of God. As it says in another place, He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs with no numbing agent whatsoever. By the way, um, don't mix gall into your communion. What do you mean? Don't add gall to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't numb the truth of it. Don't deny what really took place. Don't soften the message of the Gospel or even the message of this psalm which gets a little more intense in just a minute here. Don't mix in gall to your faith. Because there are some right now in the church and we're seeing it happen who want to numb the reality of the cross. It's too harsh a message you know, for this generation, for this culture. We need to soften it a bit. We need to, I've heard this, we need to reimagine the Gospel for this generation. First of all, the Gospel is not the stuff of imagination. The Gospel happened. The Gospel is the truth that we see in history. But secondly, reimagine it. This is what took place. This is what He did. How dare we try to pull even a a smidgen of the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the weight of what took place at Calvary when He took the entire weight of our sin on His shoulders. How dare we view it as anything less? Those would say, well, I don't like the fact that the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. That's just a little too heavy. Hey, that's what happened. Don't mix gall. 
Because the only cause for our justification is the cross. But there was a second drink they offered to Jesus. It says in the latter part of verse 21, And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So they offered him gall. He said, no, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar, vinegar to drink. Where do we see that? John nineteen twenty eight. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. Uh, Rick, it says, it says vinegar. Okay, the word vinegar in the Greek is oixos. And the Greek word vinegar is what's used in the Septuagint right here in Psalm 69.21. So the Greek translation of this Hebrew psalm uses the word oixos. The same word is used in John 19.29 where it says a jar full of sour wine oixos. Okay, sour wine vinegar is what it was. And they would drink it if there was nothing else. But it's, it's wine that's just gone bad. It's, it's got bitterness to it, bitter taste. But it was standing there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He said, as you know, as less you share with me earlier, to Talos die. It's done. But note what he did. This is the precision of prophecy. They offered me gall for my food. They did. And he rejected it because he would not go numb. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And he accepted that. Why? Because the prophecy said he would. And he fulfills it precisely. By the way, note that in verse 20 it says, Reproach has broken my heart. And we've mentioned this recently, that John 19.34 tells us that when the soldier speared Jesus in the side, the blood and water flowed. And that blood and water was a sign that what killed Jesus physically, you know, Jesus gave up His spirit. Jesus was in complete control on the cross. When He said to Talos die, it is finished. He was done and His spirit left. That was it. But when the spear went in, what we see is the physical cause of the death of Christ was a ruptured heart. Because that's what would happen. You'd have blood water together mixed come shooting out. So his heart was ruptured even as it says, reproach has broken my heart. Now get this. Because suddenly we make a turn. We get all the way to the cross. All the way literally to the heart breaking of Jesus. And now the psalm becomes filled with imprecation. With condemnation and cursing. Verses 22 through 28. And this is tough for some people. In fact, all the imprecatory psalms are difficult. People read those and go, wow. I mean, I like to read them when I'm in a really bad mood and I want to call someone out. (laughs) But man, imprecatory psalms, let's just move on to the nice, sweet, gentle ones. And there are those who say, see, God is just too condemnational. I I like what Kidner said. The sudden transitions in the Psalms from humble devotion to fiery imprecation create an embarrassing problem for the Christians who are assured that all Scripture is inspired and profitable, but equally that He Himself is to bless those who curse them. So we're told, bless those who curse you, but then we read David cursing the snot out of his enemies. And worse, is this Jesus now? I mean, I get it. You can say David's had enough and so he's pouring out condemnation. I've done that. I've been there. Lord Jesus, break their teeth. I mean, I can get that. But but Jesus? Jesus condemning like this? 
I don't know. Are we still the Spirit of Christ? Is this still Him speaking here? For me personally, the raw makes it more real. I like hearing it raw. I like the idea. You may call me weird, but I like the idea. And some call me weird anyway. But I like the idea that Jesus could call down curses. That Jesus could use condemnational language like this. It makes Him all the more relatable. Now, I'm not talking about condemnation as a sin. But watch this, because there is a prophetic weight to these curses and imprecations that is far heavier than just someone crying out in vengeance and pain. Listen, verse 22, May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. Ooh, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, while they're saying, peace, peace, destruction will come upon them suddenly. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. And may their loins shake continuously. Uh, You you can figure out what that means. (laughs) These are the next two quoted verses in the New Testament. So keep your finger here and turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And hear this in context. Understand what he's saying as he begins to pour out these curses. Romans chapter 11, verse 7, Paul applies the curses of Psalm 69, applies them to, listen, the hard-hearted of Israel. As he's calling them down, those who refuse to believe, who reject Messiah, Jesus, as their own, Romans 11, will begin in verse 7, Paul says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, Isaiah 29, verse 10, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, slightly different. Especially that last line where we, where we read in Psalm 69, make their loins shake continually, and then here, bend their backs forever. But you just need to understand the difference is either the translation is it's either the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. Are we all used to that? What those are? That the Masoretic is what our Hebrew Bibles are based on. It's, it's the, the most recent Hebrew translation that we have. And it comes like 800 years after Jesus, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that was done 200, almost 300 years before Christ. So when you see that difference, that's why there's a slight difference, because one is a Greek translation from the Hebrew, and the other is the Hebrew translation. And so you see that slight difference. But understand this, even with the difference in translation here, the euphemism is the same. The phrase is implying the same thing. Make their loins shake or bend their backs means may they be doubled over in pain. Either way, you're just talking about a, a curse of pain. Of people doubled over, writhing in anguish and pain. You know when we see that? In the tribulation. You remember? 
several times throughout our study, Revelation 6 through 19, where we see humanity bent over in pain, doubled over men like they're in the pain of childbirth. And it's an exact fulfillment of this psalm. Of course, it continues. Then in verse 24, well, wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't skip ahead, Rick. Okay, Rick. Um, verse 11. Let me go a little bit further here with Paul and what he has to say about Israel. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if there, that is the Jews, transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Well, that's good, because I think that's most of us here tonight. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, the Jews, and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so Paul makes it clear. Yes, Israel was hardened. Why? So that salvation could come to the Gentiles. But Israel will await. Again, You know what awakens in Israel? You know what's going to do it? Emotion. Israel will return to passion. They will feel again for Messiah. In fact, it says when they see Him coming, they will literally mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. Because the emotion returns. And all of this will finally be fulfilled. Back in Psalm 69, verse 24, he says, Pour out your indignation on them. I've told you before, the Hebrew word for indignation is paralleled in the New Testament with tribulation. When the Hebrew Scriptures talk about or refer to the indignation of God, it plays out in the wrath and the tribulation that we read about in the book of Revelation. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. So not rebellious Israel alone, but all who reproach the sacrifice of Jesus, servant of the Lord, are going to go into the indignation of God. will experience that indignation. The very thing called out in the psalm, poured out from, listen, the heart of Jesus, may they go into Tribulation, may they experience your indignation, loins shaking, backs bent over, feeling the pain of their choices, of those decisions. And verse 25, may their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. Interesting, because Isaiah 53, verse 4, says we considered Him smitten of God. We look upon Christ at the cross. Those who saw Him at the cross said, this is, this is God's punishment on Him. David wrote about it a thousand years before. Isaiah mentions it 750 years before. We see it fulfilled in Jesus that they persecuted Him whom God Himself had smitten. And note this, they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded, and the word wounded there is pierced. Pierced. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. These imprecations 
of indignation run the entire length of the tribulation. So you might even note that. Verses 22 through 28, he calls for, literally calls for, the indignation of God to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And it will be fulfilled in that time of tribulation. I don't say that with glee. I say that with seriousness. Just as we studied through all these things, it's not playful. It's not a joke. This is coming on the world. A time of testing that will encompass the globe. And Jesus said, I'll keep you from it. I'll keep you from it. You trust in me. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation in Jesus Christ. The last New Testament quote is right here. It's in verse 25, and it ties right in. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. And Peter said in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate and no one dwell in it. And Peter is quoting Psalm 69, verse 25, and applying it to Judas. Now, stay with me on this. Think this through a little bit. He's talking about, Peter is quoting this, talking about Judas. Judas whose life, as we talked about Sunday, would become a complete desolation. A waste. Son of perdition. But remember, that's the same that's said of Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 He's called, Paul calls him the son of perdition, which is the same name that Jesus calls Judas in John 17, verse 12. Judas is the son of perdition, son of waste. Paul says Antichrist is the son of destruction, perdition, waste. Same word is used there. And if you draw that out further, what happens to Antichrist? Daniel chapter 11, verse 45. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. That's a place we know of as Armageddon, The Valley of Megiddo. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Antichrist is being prophesied about there. Revelation 19, verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him in Megiddo. And him who sat on the horse, that is Jesus Christ, and his army, and the beast was seized, Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived these, or those who had received the mark, and those who worshipped the beast in his image, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, such a desolate waste. Such a waste. And verse 28 then says, May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous and those who stand against God in the tribulation will be blotted out of the book of life and will not be recorded with the righteous. Those who stand with their rebellion and say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I don't want to be a part of Jesus. Now, by the way, you might note this in verse 28 that blotted out of the book of life. Literally, that's not the book of life he's talking about there. Because literally in the Hebrew, it should read, may they be blotted out of the book of the living. The book of the living is a different book. In fact, there are three books. Well, there are two books and there's a volume, a a set of books. Three altogether. The first book is the book of the living which we read about in Psalm 139.16. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You're all written in there. God's got a book that has detailed the length of your life. 
Which is kind of cool to me. Because that means if I were to die tomorrow, that was already written down. If I have another 30 years, that's already written down. God's already determined that. The length of my days, He knows. Which is why David said in another place, help me number that. Teach me how to number my days so I don't just assume I'll go on and on and on in this life, in this world. The book of the living. But there's also the Lamb's book of life, which is a book of eternity, of eternal life. And then there's that, number three, several volume set that we call the book or books of deeds. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book is open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. That is the volumes, the book of deeds according to their deeds. And we, we just went through all of this. Book of the living. Everyone's written in that. Your days are numbered right there. God has a track of that. He knows how long it will be for each and every one of us. So be at peace. You're not going to get one more day than God's already got written down. The only person I know who did was Hezekiah, and that's because God got out his eraser and gave him 15 extra years. By the way, it wasn't a good 15 years because it was in that time that he gave birth to a son named Manasseh who was the most evil king in Israel. Anyway. Your days are already written down. That's... That's the book of the living. The Lamb's book of life. That's the one you want to be in. By the Spirit. Note this. David says, by the Spirit of Christ, may they be blotted out of the book of the living. That is, may their lives just be over. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. That would be in the Lamb's book of life. And that's where you want to be. Remember the promise of Jesus? Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase His name from the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. But of all these judgments, as written, all of them will come upon the world. But not because David was upset. These will all come upon the world because God is righteous. So even an imprecation, a curse or condemnation, if spoken by Jesus, is spoken in absolute and complete righteousness and fairness. I was going to say righteous fairness. And understand what happened before all these imprecations, before this indignation, before the tribulation comes about on planet earth. Reading the psalm all the way down through verse 21 and Jesus on the cross refusing the gall, finally taking the sour wine. Then he says, die. it's finished. What happened prior to all of the curses that are leveled? Well, on the cross, Jesus said, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And that's where we are right now. And this is what makes, gives understanding. And, and, and share this with people. There's an answer to anyone who says, God is unfair. You know what the answer is? 2,000 years. God is condemning 2,000 years. God is a wrathful God who's, who, who's going to, you're telling me He's going to bring tribulation to this world? Why would I believe in a God like that? 2,000 years of grace. 
that before imprecation comes, before condemnation lands, He says, Father, forgive them. And He dies saying it is finished. And He did everything without cause on our part that we might be saved. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has just been waiting as the grace of God patiently gives every single person an opportunity to repent and be saved. Does He not have a right to condemnation? I'll tell you what, from the cross, Jesus had the right. And I've said jokingly before, but if it was me up on the cross and I had the power that Jesus had, lightning would have been flashing right and left and people falling to their death while I hung there. Bam, 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 bam! Right out of my fiery eyes. I would be reading these out. May their table become a snare. And when they're in peace, it may become a trap. Ground opens up. I mean, I would just be... All of these condemnations are real and actual and coming. But it's the grace of God that puts it off. It's the grace of God that not only puts it off, but says, I have a way for you never to be a part of that. You trust in Jesus. You lean into Him. You let Him be the Savior of your life, which is why this even this imprecatory psalm is a Savior psalm. Because all the warning and all the condemnation is on hold while you and I have had opportunity to say, Yes, Lord, and to believe in Jesus Christ. And I have no idea where I am in my notes. Okay. Verse 29. But I... Am afflicted and in pain. By the way, after all the cursing, 22, 23, all the way through 28, all those curses and condemnations and anger, did you hear it just flowing out? And then, and then, but I am infl- afflicted and in pain. You know what? All the cursing in the world can't make pain go away. Cursing other people does not make you feel better. Actually, did you hear about the, the article? I probably shouldn't share this, but you know me. The article that says screaming the F word actually makes you feel better. I can think of better things to say. And I'm not advising that in the least. I promise it won't make you feel better. Just make you feel ashamed for being so stupid to shout that out. I suggest you shout hallelujah. Hit your thumb with a hammer. Hallelujah. Man, that feels good. Doesn't it? You know, hit your head on a low door. Oh, amen and amen. There's a better way. But all this cursing, and it just, it just struck me that after all the cursing, he's still afflicted. He's still in pain. He's still feeling it. And then he says, May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. Sometimes I I hear the translators and I just think, guys, why didn't you just leave it alone and do it exactly as written? Because as written is better. You know what this is as written? May your salvation, O God, set me inaccessibly high. So high that those who would reproach me can't get to me. Set me up here on your shelf. Set me up here with you, Lord, in heaven. Rapture me out of this hole. Set me inaccessibly high, he says. In verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. Do you see the flow here of emotion? 
That we've gone from pain and reproach and sorrow to zeal, even anger in the house of the Lord, to more sorrow, to pain, to condemnation and imprecation, and now he's singing praises. And it's sudden. I mean, it's right out of the, I'm I'm afflicted and in pain, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving, which tells me the best thing you can do when you're hurting is go to worship. Praise the Lord. You've had a lousy day? Man, don't watch America's Got Talent. Because you'll just sit there grumpy and upset wondering why you don't have any. Go worship. And I'm preaching to the choir here, but there is something soothing and healing about just worshiping the Lord, even if you're afflicted, even if you're feeling pain. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. God has always appreciated the sacrifice of praise over the sacrifice of animals. Even all the countless years of blood sacrifice in the temple in Israel, God would still prefer the sacrifice of praise. The offering of the heart is always better than the offering of horns and hoofs. And that's what the psalmist describes. See, David got that. David understood, I can go give a sacrifice, but if my heart's not in it, God doesn't delight in that. He doesn't care. He wants to know where my heart is. But if I bring that lamb and I go up to the temple and I am worshiping Him and I hand that lamb over and it's sacrificed to the Lord and I am giving the best that I've got and, and it stings a little because I, I love this little lamb, but I love the Lord more and I'm saying, Lord, I'm so thankful to You for all Your provision in my life. I praise You for being God. That's something God enjoys. That's something that means something to the Lord. It reminds us again, He does not want your religion. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants you. So the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 13, 15, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Verse 32, The humble have seen and are glad. And you who seek God, let your heart revive. The word revive, you could also translate that, live. Let your heart live. You who seek God, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. That is the people of Israel. And the descendants of His servants will inherit it. The seed of Israel, that seed of of faith planted in Israel that now has germinated in your life, in mine, as we've been grafted into Israel. We're a part of this. It's referring to us. The descendants of His servants will inherit it. And those who love Hashem will dwell in it. Hashem. I prayed this earlier, but that's what Jews today oftentimes will call God because they don't want to say God. Out of deep respect, they'll go G-D even when they write it. Or they refer to Hashem, the name. That's all it means. That, that's the exact phrasing here. Those who love Hashem, those who love the name, will dwell in Zion. Do, do you love His name? Amen. Boy, I love His name. I love the name of Jesus. 
I love just speaking the name of Jesus, praising the name of Jesus, praying in the name of Jesus, calling out to Jesus. I love hearing other people say Jesus, not in a cursing way. That breaks my heart. But Jesus... See, what Israel has missed is that Hashem is still distant. The name. And I understand the respect, and we need to respect Jesus. We need to respect God. But He gave us a name we could call out to. The name of Jesus. A simple, common name to be as close as possible. And as we read out the the end of this psalm, this is the response of a follower of Jesus to the painful reproach of this world. This is the response, best response of the follower of Jesus who is in affliction, who is sorrowful, who is going through any of the gamut of emotions that we see here in Jesus. The response is, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to God and love His name. Now, not every Savior psalm is easy to hear. You may have come looking for a Selah tonight, and you may have realized that in Psalm 69, there's not a single Selah. (laughs) Or maybe you just came tonight thinking, okay, good, I hope it's like the, the Lord is my shepherd. And instead, I'm hearing Jesus call down curses. I'm seeing Him sacrifice. And we're talking again about pain. I'm like, this is, this is tough stuff. Where's the rest? Literally, the Savior Shepherd is still guiding us through paths of righteousness for His name's sake. For those who love Hashem, the name. Even through the painfully emotional Psalms, like Psalm 69, Jesus does something here, and I hope you catch it. He offers this amazing comfort and peace. Because even as we hear Jesus in distress... Even as we see Jesus crying out imprecatory judgment, you know what it tells us? It tells us that God is near the hurting human heart. That God gets it. That there's no depth of emotion you've experienced that He doesn't know what it feels like. We can sometimes say to someone, oh man, I I understand what you're going through. And we don't, because we haven't been there. He's been there. He knows. He feels it. He felt it in the most brutal and bloody way possible. He he felt it all. He understands it all because He felt it all. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things or tried in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But I want to end with this and note it all the way back to the beginning of the psalm. In fact, the heading, it is according to Shoshanim. According to Shoshanim. And while the old hymn goes, He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. When we talk about the lily of the valley, the lily describes someone else. I want you to turn to the right to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And I find this interesting because sometimes we can actually allow allow our songs to shade our theology and be a little bit off. Which is why I'm always telling Rachel, test the theology. 
I'm not always telling you, but I've told you that, haven't I? Say yes. Okay, I am now. Test the theology. Test the theology in the song because the song gets into our head and sometimes changes our theology. And this is a great example of that. We sing, He's the lily of the valley. Uh Uh-uh. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. And then, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So who's talking where? And this is key in understanding the Song of Solomon. Verse 1 is the bride. Verse 2 is the groom. It's the bride who says, I am the lily of the valleys. In fact, what's nice is now we know her name, Lily. (laughs) I am the lily of the valley, sings the bride in the Song of Solomon. And then the groom confers, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So the bride calls herself Lily, and the groom confirms, yep, she's a lily. So the lily's not the groom, the lily is the bride. Listen, if the bride is the lily of the valley, wouldn't that be more descriptive of the church? When the lily, or especially lilies, plural, this is according to Shoshanim, which is lilies, plural, the lilies of the valley. Wouldn't that be the church? If that's the bride in Song of Solomon, you might say, well, Rick, that's kind of a stretch, or maybe you're trying to bend a point here. Uh uh-uh. Think of a valley sprinkled with lilies as you would see in the valleys in Israel. Common, all over the place. And think then about what Jesus said in Luke twelve twenty seven. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? You lilies? I'm saying, were the lilies of the valley. Why is the psalm according to the lilies? Because Jesus is the Savior impassioned for His bride. The emotion we see in Psalm 69 is the emotion of a God who is head over heels for His people. Who loves so much that the reproaches sting and hurt because He knows, as He declared, they're going to be reproached because they follow Me. And that hurts Jesus. The the pain on the cross was so intense because He felt every sin. Taking it off of our shoulders and onto Himself. He loves His bride and what He did, He did for her. And for anyone who would come down the aisle. Father, I just pray You'd help us to comprehend the depth of Your emotion and your love for your people. That as the lilies of the valley, as your bride, you went through all of this. In fact, even becoming a man and then becoming a bondservant all the way to the cross, you expressed in the most precisely painful of terms, you expressed your love your passion, your desire for your people. 
Oh Jesus, forgive us for every for forever thinking that you were solid or somber. Allow us to embrace the gamut of the emotion that you felt. Never out of place, Lord. Always self-controlled and yet deeply passionate. We, we see this in you. And we have to pause and recognize that the lover of our souls is a lover. And that what is so often called, Lord Jesus, as the passion of the Christ was a moment of intense passion. And I would ask that you would increase our zealousness. That you'd fire us up a bit in our feelings towards you, in our emotion. And may we, Lord, pursue you with all of the emotion that you pursued us. Thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.